Well, kia ora, everyone. We're into part two of the series we began last week, simply called the Bible. And I said last week that the word Bible comes from the Greek word biblios, which simply means book or the book. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be exploring the book. We're going to do a bit of a deep dive into the divine library and see what we can learn. So there's no doubt, as I said last week, that the authority of the Bible is under unprecedented attack from both without and from within some sectors of the church. So for us as Jesus followers, it's important that we settle the matter of the Bible's authority. And I, I need to say for me as a Jesus follower, I've actually never had any trouble believing that the Bible is God's word. It's, it's not something that someone needed to convince me of or argue me into. And when I think about why is that, why, why am I like that, it's simply because when I was 20, I had an encounter with Jesus. I had an encounter with Jesus the Christ that changed my life. I had what people call a conversion experience. I got saved. I was, I, I was born Again, or as some of my bros back in the day used to say, they, 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 they'd say, he's got religion, he's seen the light. That's what they would say about me. But, but Christ called me, Christ cleansed me, he healed me, he washed me, and turned my life upside down. And it was at that moment that I finally understood what the hymn writer has said almost a century ago. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, it saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I can see. I was lost, but I'm now found. I, I, I got it. I understood. I understood it because Christ had done it in my life. And I just want to say, if you're watching today, I want to tell you the same Christ who did it for me, He can do it for you. He can turn your life around if you would give your life to Him. So my life radically changed. My, on that day, my life radically, radically changed from a pot-smoking, dope-dealing, dull-dependent, down and out. Overnight, everything changed for me. This is a, a picture of me on the night I got saved. And uh, I just it was, it was just it, overnight, my life, uh, like I said, it was like a, a darkness to light. It was just changed in an instant. I even remember the time God spoke to me after the meeting where I gave my life to Christ. I used to smoke a lot. And, and so I came home and it was nighttime, maybe about 10 o'clock at night. And I remember rolling up a cigarette and looking up at the sky, thinking about the amazing thing, uh, thing that had just happened to me that God had done in my life. And as I took a puff on the smoke, I heard God's voice say, you will not smoke anymore. And it gave me such a fright that I took my packet of roll yarns. They were expensive. They still are expensive, more expensive now. And I threw them away. And that was the end of smoking for me. I wish it was that simple for everyone, but that's how it was for me. God spoke to me. So for, so, so for me, it was kind of natural. When I believed in him, it was natural that I would believe in his book. It was like, I never had any doubts. It was like just a part of the package. It was a, it was a done deal. And so when, when Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, for the word of God is alive and active, I can say that's how the Bible was for me, that's what I experienced. I remember the first time I was going to 
India to do a discipleship training school with youth with a mission. And I was like, man, I need to know when to go. I'm just a new Christian. I'm a new, uh, a, a new believer. And I'm like, Lord, when do you want me to do this course? Should I, should I book my uh, uh, plane ticket here or should I book my plane ticket in the summer? Which two, there were two courses running. Which one? When should I book my plane ticket? And so at that moment, I decided to do what I call the Pentecostal flick. Now, I'm not recommending anybody does this, but this is what I did. I'm just a simple childlike faith. Uh, a believing believer, and so I, I just got my Bible, and probably we've all done it at one stage in our life, and I said, Lord, just speak to me, and I flicked it open, and no word of a lie, this is what, this is what it said. So I flicked it open, and this is what I immediately read. Your flight will not take place in winter, and I was like, boom, that's it, settled. It was, I, I mean, I just closed it. I was like, I knew exactly when to do the courses. So I booked my flight in summer and the January of the upcoming year. And then I went and did the course in India. And of course, that's where I met Anita. I married Anita and we've had babies together and the rest is history. Come on. That's how it worked out. Now, I'm not saying that is how you should use the Bible. Please, I, I'm really not saying. In fact, my reformed friends would be rolling their eyes right now. But this young believer had a childlike faith, and God spoke, and I obeyed. Now, like I said, I'm not recommending that this is the way you read the Bible, because the funny thing is, I never read the context of that verse. I never read the context till ages later. And later on, I, when, when I read it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. It was from Matthew 24, and it was subtitled in at least one Bible, The Abomination of Desolation. Speaking of the end times, here's the context. Matthew 24, verse 19, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress and tribulation unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. Uh, how many? I, uh, how many know? If I, I think if I had read that with my Pentecostal flick, I might have gone. Let's try another verse, shall we? Let's look for. Let's flick it open in some other place. But all that to say, this for me. When when, when I believed in him, it was natural for me to to believe in his book. To, uh, to to believe in the book, I didn't have to have every question answer. I didn't have to have every doubt dealt with. And actually, when I think about it, that's how life is in so many, so many areas. We don't have to have every question answered, every doubt dealt with in any area of life, really, to be able to uh, function. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how my TV works. I, don't know how, I know how to switch it on. I know how to do a couple of things. I know how to set my parents up. So they're watching today. Hi, Mum and Dad. They're, they're watching today. To, 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 I know how to set up, how to watch Connect church online and all that kind of stuff, but I really don't know how the TV works, how it receives signals, what's on the inside of the TV, but that doesn't stop me using it. I, I, I don't know how a car works. I'm not a mechanic, I, but I know how to drive it. I don't need to have everything or understand everything about the car in order to use it. The same with the phone. I can, I can take my phone, and it's amazing technology, and I can take a photo, and I can send it to a phone over there, and they'll get it, and I know what to do, but I don't know how it does it. And so I don't need to have every question answered, every doubt dealt with. But uh, it's important that we understand that. But, but, but of course, not everyone's like me. Not everyone's like me. Some people need to work it all through. And one of my favorite TV shows is The, 
Uh, Chase, I'm sure there's some Chase fans out there. I really just watched the last five minutes, that final, final Chase. But uh, this week I read an article about Anne Haggerty, who's one of the Chasers, known as the Governess, if you know her nickname. And it was about her Christian faith. It says this, this a very clever woman looked into the evidence for the Christian faith. She admitted, I couldn't come up with any arguments against it. I became a Christian because in my teens, I read a lot of the Christian writings of C.S. Lewis, a professor and children's author, and thought this makes sense to me. It may be not surprising that her route to faith in Jesus was through logical arguments. Anne has been open about the problems of living with Asperger's syndrome, one of which is having difficulty relating to emotions. She thinks this played a part. My faith is intellectual rather than emotional. And that's because I'm not a terribly emotional person. Yes, we've noticed Anne on the show. For me... The most important thing, she said, the most important bit about Christianity is when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I keep focusing on the word truth. Some people believe things because they find them comforting. But I have to know that this stuff about Jesus actually happened. And I do believe it happened because you couldn't make it up. It seems so plausible to me. When Anne meets people who don't believe, all the arguments do is to strengthen her faith because I know that I can Defend it. In my mind, Jesus is the incarnate God, God in human body. That's central and essential to me. So there are many questions on subjects like God, the Bible, etc., that actually have satisfying answers. And many of the questions people want answers to are actually spiritual questions. And spiritual questions require spiritual answers. And so here's the thing. If you only accept, if you're watching today and you only accept secular answers to spiritual questions, you may never be satisfied. You may be disappointed. I mean, that's like trying to explain love's first kiss, trying to explain love's first kiss scientifically. Well, it's not a scientific question. It's a love question. It's a philosophical question. It's, it's better answered by a love song than a scientist. And if you're not a person of faith, the fact is, any answers may seem foolish. Any answer. Even the Apostle Paul said, the message we carry is foolishness to those who don't believe. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power. Come on, on your lounge chair, say power. Like you, that's it. Well done. Power of God. I like how the Amplified Bible says it. 1 Corinthians 1.18, it says, for the message of the cross is foolishness, absurd and illogical to those who are perishing and spiritually dead because they reject it. But to us who are being saved by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the power of God. You know, like I said last week, the Bible is a big book. And there are many passages, in fact, entire portions of it that I don't understand. But like I said, they don't trouble me. It's the bits I do understand that cause me the trouble. So I don't have a problem in saying because of what God has done in my life, I, along with the governess, can state that the Bible is the only authoritative 
written revelation of God. It's the inspired word of God. Not to say there are still teachings in the Bible that I'm still trying to get my head around. And I guess as I get older, I realize the more I find out, the less I know there is so much to learn. And that's part of the process of digging a little deeper today. And so as we do that, I just some of the resources that I'm using, just so you can know, so I'm not, not just making it up as we go along. Some of the resources I'm using in the preparation of this series are Foundations of Christian Doctrine by Kevin Connor, a great Pentecostal scholar. And another uh, book I'm using, 77 FAQs about God and the Bible by Josh and Sean McDowell. And uh, finally, this book, which I recommend every Christian household should have, this book, the complete and updated expanded classic, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, Life-Changing Truth for a Skeptical World by Josh McDowell and Sean McDowell, PhD. I would encourage you to get this book. This covers pretty much every question people ask, and it's a great resource also to minister to your spirit when, you, when it comes to thinking about things logically and, and challenges to the Christian faith, uh, faith. So really recommend that you get that book. Uh, so today, let's talk about inspiration. Second uh, Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17 says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. But when we talk about the word of God being inspired, what does that even mean? What does that even mean? When the apostle Paul said that all scripture is inspired by God, I want you to understand that he did not mean that the Bible was merely an inspirational book, although it can be. The Apostle Paul actually used a specific word in the Greek language. And I'm not even going to try and say it. It should be up on your screen. I mean, it's like Snuffleupagus of Sesame Street for me. It's a common, and I don't want to get it. I don't want to get it wrong. But this, this word only appears one time in the whole Bible. And it simply means God breathed. And of course, some versions actually say that. The NIV says all scripture is God breathed which simply means the written words in the Bible are from God. That's why we refer to Scripture as the Word of God. Jesus referred to Scripture that way. One example, Matthew 15, verse 6, when he told the Pharisees that they were misusing Scripture in their teaching, he, he said, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the Word of God. Now, while the Bible... The scripture, God's word, though it is called that, we've got to understand that it doesn't mean that God penned the words himself. He didn't put people into a trance and use their hands and pens to write out his thoughts and ideas. That's not what inspired means. Rather, he chose people to be his spokesmen. And God spoke through them to write down his words and message through their unique personalities. It's interesting to note that over 3,000 times the biblical writers claimed to have received their words from God, using phrases like, the word of the Lord came to me in Ezekiel. The Lord said to Moses, Leviticus, says to the Lord, Isaiah, declares the Lord, Jeremiah, and so on. Even the apostle Paul, Apostle Paul said, I want you to understand that the message I preach, well, it's not from me. 
For I would, he says in Galatians 1, verses 11 through 12, he says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. So God's word, spoken and written by his prophets and apostles, is what? It's a special revelation. So God inspired, breathed upon the writing of what we now call the Bible. Why? So he could reveal his thoughts, words, and promises that we could have them preserved from generation to generation. So the Bible is a special revelation of God, from God written by human authors who were inspired directly by him. And because of that, the Bible carries power and weight, or what we might call authority. Because behind Scripture stands the sovereign God of the universe. So is the Bible a product of God, humans, or both? Well, the simple answer is yes. Yes to all. We've got to understand that the 40-some authors of the 66 books of the Bible were not mindless dictation machines. It would seem God in His wisdom selected specific human authors with various backgrounds, different talents, educational training, and varied experiences for a very good reason. God being infinite wanted his words to communicate clearly to finite humans like you and I. He chose shepherds and soldiers, prophets and poets, monarchs and scholars, servants and tax collectors, fishermen and tent makers, each who had a unique human experience, enabling them to convey a tapestry of meanings that we could all understand. Josh McDowell puts it like this. It's as if God was composing a musical masterpiece using a 40-piece orchestra. Think of the master maestro who had created a specific musical composition. He uses different instruments for different purposes. The various drums set the rhythm. The trumpets call us to action. The violins and cellos soothe us. The flutes lift our spirits. In the hands of the maestro, the different and varied instruments produce a symphony of sounds that move the mind, heart, and emotions of the hearer of this message of the music. In a similar way, God uses the different authors to impart His message clearly to us, no matter who we are or how varied our human experience might be. I mean, think about it for a moment. Take the life experiences of King David. He started out as a shepherd, killed a giant, was a musician, had his life threatened by Saul, became king, committed adultery, murder, fought and won wars, and so on. David knew what it meant to have ups and downs in life. He was a flawed human being, and yet God used him. God used his multifaceted human experiences to powerfully communicate his word. Using David's tender heart of devotion, his desire to serve, his sin and his failings, along with his deep passion to know God 
intimately. I mean, what about Mr. Overconfident Peter? He actually denied Jesus, was restored, forgiven, and became a powerful voice to the early church. Yet in spite of his weaknesses and failings, his writings of 1 Peter, 2 Peter, we have one of the greatest messages there is about how to maintain a life of devotion and holiness in the midst of temptation and suffering. Josh McDowell says, as with the multiple musical instruments in an orchestra, God made use of the many and varied human experiences of his spokesman to craft what he wanted us to know in words that would enable us to clearly understand his heart and his mind. And of course, because God spoke his words through people, the, the scripture is textured with so many and varied literary forms and styles and different perspectives and emotions and cultures. It's like God captures the full character of those who he spoke through. From the tight-knit logic of the scholar Paul and his epistles to the priestly perspective of the theologian, the writer of Hebrews, to the poetic talents of the musician, David and Psalms, to the despair and agony of the people, Jeremiah and Lamentation. Each book of Scripture is presented through the lens of its human spokesman, yet still conveys the exact message God wanted us to hear. The exact message that God wanted us to receive. So is the book holy or the message contained in the book? For Christians, the book in and of itself, its pages, the ink, the words, is not holy. It's not what is holy. Rather, it's the message and revelation that it contains. That's why Christians don't even think twice about highlighting their Bibles, marking them, writing all over them. It's almost, in fact, a badge of honor uh, to have a very heavily marked Bible, because why? Why do we do that? Because the book itself is just ink on paper, and for many, it's now just app on phones. So to write, to highlight, to mark, the Bible is not an issue. But for Jews, please understand, when they see us doing that, they go, what are you doing? This is the, because to them, the scrolls, the, the Tanakh, the Torah, they, they, they're hot. They are in the, and of themselves holy. One, therefore, and this is off a website I read, it says, speaking of the scrolls and the books, the Tanakh and so on, and the Torah, one should therefore keep his sacred books on nice shelves or cabinets, apart from his secular books. One should also be careful not to store sacred books near food where they may be stained or attacked by mice or vermin. When picking up a sacred book which has fallen to the ground, it is customary to kiss it as a sign of love and respect for God's teaching. For the same reason, it is customary to kiss the sacred book when closing it and putting it away. Muslim people also follow that tradition with the Quran. And I say that to you because I want you to understand if we're going to be a people who reach out to ones of other, other faiths, I'm, I'm just saying we perhaps need to think differently about how we treat our Bible. And this is something that I learned in India. 
they could not understand different people I was reaching how we could draw on the Bible or, or, or mark, mark it and, or, or just get in the car and throw it on the ground. And so I'm, all I'm saying that for is that if you want to be someone who reaches out to other faiths, faith, you probably need to be someone who thinks twice about using your big study Bible as a laptop proper-upper or a shelf, something to stand on to reach that place on a high shelf because for them they regard the book in and of itself as holy anyway as I close today here's how I'll sum up the God breathed inspiration of the Bible in this we can say the Bible is a product of both God and humans Yet its writing was supernaturally guided and divinely inspired to convey precisely and exactly what God wanted it to. The authority of the Bible comes not from the caliber of its human authors, but from the character of its divine author. Let's continue next week to dig a little deeper on another subject around the Biblios, the Bible. As I close, as I said earlier on in this message, Christ changed my life, and I want to tell you, if He can change me, He can change you. I know where you're watching this from, but just know this. The gospel is not about how bad you are, but about how good God is. We can't save ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. I encourage you, even now, wherever you are, wherever you're watching this from, give your life to Christ. Say, Lord, come, live in my life. Be my master. Steward my life. You, you sit on the throne of my life. I've been doing it my own way. You come and be king of my life. I turn from my sin and seek to follow you. Help me do this today. As we close wherever you are, why don't you stand as I pronounce a blessing over your life? An ancient blessing. A lot of people say that's a hit song. No, it's an ancient blessing. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you. May the Lord be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God bless.